Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. We have a special episode today of Half Hour of Heterodoxy, and it's all about gratitude. I'm Deb Mashek, the Executive Director of Heterodox Academy, guest hosting for Chris. And we're in New York, partnering with our friends at the How Do We Fix It Solutions Journalism Podcast. Their show and ours are being recorded together. We're doing something different here. It's called a simulpod. Three hosts and one guest. Doesn't sound quite fair, does it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs, co-host of How Do We Fix It? And in a new drive to share the love and expand our audience, we're joined by our friend Deb Mashek, executive director of the Heterodox Academy, a really interesting organization that fights for more ideological diversity in colleges and universities. And she's also hosting their podcast, The Half Hour of Heterodoxy. So we're doing these two shows simultaneously. A simulpod. The well-known and highly praised author and journalist A.J. Jacobs is joining us at our table to talk about the many benefits of gratitude. A.J. is the author of several best-selling books, including The Year of Living Biblically, The Know-It-All, and My Life as an Experiment. A.J., welcome to our table. Thank you. This is very exciting. It's very efficient for me, (laughs) having two simultaneous podcast recordings. I say we bring in, like, Terry Gross from Fresh Air and a few Show her how it's done. Yeah. (laughs) We called her. She wasn't available today. (laughs) So your latest book is called Thanks a Thousand. It's a really fun read and a really thoughtful project. Tell us more about how you decided to go on this quest. Well, it started because I, you know, I knew all the intellectually, I'd read all the research on how important gratitude is to your mental health, to sleeping, you exercise better when you're grateful. So I tried a couple of years ago to start this ritual of saying a prayer of Thanksgiving before a meal. Problem is, I'm an atheist. So that it was a little hard to thank God. So instead, uh, I decided to thank some of the people involved. And my son, my 10-year-old son, was like, that's kind of lame because those people are not, they can't hear you. So if you were really committed, you would go and thank them in person. And I said, that is a nice book idea. Thank you for earning your supper. And so you did this. You said thank yous for what goes into a single cup of coffee. Right. And the point is that it turned out to be thousands of people. So for instance, you know, I thank the barista and and the coffee bean farmer, but also you got the truck driver who drove the coffee beans. So the idea is just to show the interdependence and interconnectivity of our world. Tell us more about what you realized from visiting coffee growers in Colombia. First of all, it was amazing and interesting and beautiful, terrifying, because it was in this mountain town, and the driver who drove me there went on these curvy roads, and he was doing the sign of the cross like every 30 seconds. Uh, and thank you, but... Yeah, you're an atheist, but you know what that means. <laughs> but you were doing it too. <laughs> well, I was like, you know, please keep your hands on the wheel, and can you do it in your mind? Um, but they were... At first, a little confused because people don't come down and thank them. But then they they got into it and they pointed out all of the people that they rely on. 
And what I thought was intriguing was all the little things that go into it. Even, you know, the guy who designs the lid. Oh, the I coffee. love this yeah. guy. He was a fantastic character because he was so passionate about the lid. Uh, I compare him to Elon Musk of lids. Hopefully more emotionally stable. So, so this is the lid on the coffee cup. The plastic lid on the coffee cup. And... He talks about how important it is to your coffee because a bad lid will block the aroma. Uh, I won't take up much more time, but I could. I could go on for like an hour and a half about what he told me. And I loved it because you realize there are all these little masterpieces around that we take for granted. Wasn't he the guy who said that he's also a bass guitar player? And that we need to, or you say, that we need to appreciate the roles of the bass players, the ones who don't get noticed. But if you listen to a band without the bass, right. it doesn't sound like anything. I love that. Yes. And I think that was one of the most important realizations that I had was how important it is. We as a civilization overvalue individual achievement and undervalue teamwork. And I actually talked a lot about this in the context of science because they all want to be rock stars. But you need the people who go and replicate the experiments. It's not as flashy, but it is so important. So we're talking about your project on gratitude. And and I wanted to just walk through some of what you learned about gratitude and how what you've learned will help the rest of us. Because I think it's it's easy to say oh if you say thank you to everybody it'll put a smile on your face it's a great way to live your life yeah yeah so what right and uh, you say that gratitude does not come naturally to you so how, how, no, do, no. how do you I overcome this that you know i think in in my brain and most people's there's the larry david side and the mr roger side and they're at war and i do think humans are born with a negativity bias because evolutionarily It was better to be able to notice the line. You want to notice the poison mushroom. But now it's not so good for our psyches. So the key is for me to consciously focus on the hundreds of things that go right every day as opposed to the three or four that go wrong. Like I'll even say it out loud. When when I'm on a line at the drugstore that's moving quickly, I say to myself, I'm like, remember, this line moved quickly because I know that my brain has a tendency to remember the times when the line moves slowly and be like, oh, it's just my luck. I always am on the wrong line. That's not true. That's just because it's stickier when you're in an unpleasant situation. Now, what, what about savoring? You talk about savoring. What is that and why does it matter? Yeah, I love savoring. And there is a little science on it. I'm seeing more and more because I think it's very important. The idea is to slow down time It's like mindfulness to the extreme. So, and it could be literal savoring, like I kept the coffee on my tongue. I think it's so crucial to our happiness, but it also could be metaphorical savoring, just savoring a moment. I I try now to see my life as a collector of little moments because otherwise everything is a blur. One thought of yours really resounded with me and that's don't forget you're going to die. And, and it actually <laughs> applies personally because my brother died after a disastrously short um, fight against brain cancer. Mm, sorry. And it reminded me in my life that we all are hanging on by a thread. Absolutely. I've for many, many years have been a fan of Memento Mori, which is a um, reminder of death and the idea of always trying to remember that you are going to die. And I love that idea. It can be, in one sense, depressing, but 
if you look at it the other way, it's like carpe diem. This is an excellent example of why you have to embrace and savor what you can. Uh, so I have a memento mori on my computer. I have a skull. It's not like a creepy goth skull because that's not my style. I have more like, you know, a fun, multicolored, psychedelic skull. For me, uh, weirdly, even though it's kind of dark and, uh, and macabre in some ways, I find it liberating and helps me embrace joy. And as Warren Zevon, the great singer-songwriter, famously said, it reminds you to enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. Instead yeah. of, yeah, I say like, I say smell the roses, but also the dirt and the fertilizer. You yeah. don't want to get rid of those. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, and, there, and there's one that you like, Jim which is don't glorify the past. <gasps> yeah, oh, that's, that's a big thing with me. I always say yeah. that we romanticize the past and we catastrophize the present. And you talk about that in the book. Oh, yeah. Bit. And reading Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now is like a book-long justification for this belief because the good old days were not good. They were uh, violent and disease-ridden and racist, homophobic, sexist. They were just horrible. And often... If I'm in a bad space mentally, I will try to remember this three-word phrase, surgery without anesthesia. Like AJ, just, you must be a lot of fun at parties. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to die. And actually, it's very uplifting. That's the irony, surgery without anesthesia. You know, just the fact that uh, 100 years ago, and I talk about it in relation to coffee in my book, uh, like if I had drunk a cup of coffee 100 years ago, God knows, before the FDA, who knows what I would have had. They, they had, the adulterants were astounding. There was lead and arsenic and baked horse liver. I mean, there's a list of like 80 horrible things that they used to be in coffee. So I'm curious how all of this has fed into your parenting strategy. So as a fellow parent, um, every night before we go to bed, I ask my eight-year-old, tell me about your gratitude moment for the day and tell me something that you did to make the world a better place today. So that's around kind of your idea of, you know, making lists of what you're grateful for and whatnot. But I'm curious. And how does that work though for you? Cause I've tried that too. And, um, when, when I tried it, my kids were much younger and they will always like name three video games. And I'm like, can we move on from the video? Games? Yeah. So, so he gets fixated every now and again, but sometimes he notices the little things like that was so sweet mommy. When, I asked for a snack and you brought me my favorite snack and you didn't even have to ask me which one it was. That's so lovely. I know it's really lovely, but sometimes it's just, I'm really glad you let me play Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that struck me, AJ, when I heard about the book, it immediately reminded me of the famous TV clip of economist Milton Friedman talking about the making of the pencil. And I came away from your book with this renewed appreciation for capitalism. All these people cooperating in their own self-interest, in this incredibly complex exchange, all getting some benefit out of it. And there's no boss in charge directing all this activity. And you track this supply chain down to its source. What did you see right. in that process? It's a great piece, an essay called I Pencil, where he, he does what I do, but without caffeine and without gratitude. Just all the people who went into a pencil. Um, I, I also, overall was supportive of capitalism and continue to be. I think it's the best we've come up with. But I do differ a little from the Milton Friedman analysis on that because uh, what this project made me realize is that free market, total libertarian, no regulation capitalism, that 
is not what caused my coffee. I mean, my coffee was driven on roads that were built by the government and uh, made with water made with a, water a, a government infrastructure that's carefully maintained exactly to keep it safe. right and uh, yeah and there you know the FDA kept it safe and there was a famous speech or infamous speech by uh, Barack Obama where he said you didn't build this and he was talking about small businesses need or businesses need the government's help and he got a huge backlash because that goes against the the individual, uh, the glory of the individual in uh, in our society. But I agree with his gist. He he might have said it inelegantly, but you didn't build it alone. So uh, overall, yes to capitalism, but also yes to government. What did you learn about the dark side, and not the dark rose side, but the dark side of the coffee business? Well, that was interesting because. I think whenever you go on a supply chain, you are going to see a lot of suffering and exploitation, and that you'll see in coffee. And as we talked about, the suffering in the world has gone down for humans, but there is still a tremendous amount. And that was an important point, not to conflate gratitude and complacency, but the studies show exactly the opposite, that actually gratitude is an inspiration for making the world better, for pro-social behavior, for paying it forward. So when you see suffering, you know, it made me aware of where the water came from and the fact that so many people don't have water. So I, I got my friend who's an expert in charitable giving to advise on, you know, what is the best charity for water. He recommended, by the way, dispensers for safe water. Dispensers for Safe Water. That's yes. the name of a charity. Yeah, not so catchy, but they do good work. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jim and Deb are not going to like me saying this, but we're getting close to the end of our interview. So I wanted to ask, what advice can you offer the rest of us for tapping into uh, the potential around the Thanksgiving table for not only gratitude, but, but also just getting together and maybe bridging our divides? Well, one thing is the the thanksgiving ritual of saying thanks it's a good ritual but often it is so dull because at least at my table you know thanks for the family thanks for the fortnight and and i do think it it talks about bridging the divide because extreme gratitude is all about the connections and trying to reverse tribalism and realize that there is not us versus them like to make a cup of coffee you need uh, dozens of countries and so it's sort of a uh, the book is partly an argument against this rise of nationalism and tribalism to show we are so interconnected and breaking that apart is probably not good for our long-term interest so at heterodox academy we talk a lot about intellectual humility and curiosity and how that helps people understand others perspectives um, I'm curious if there was a time in your quest when you were intellectually humbled, when you realized you didn't know it all, and then the role that played in your feelings or your expressions of gratitude. Ah, I love that. I am 100% with you on intellectual humility. Um, but yeah, I think the whole experience was a lesson in epistemological humility because I didn't know all that went into coffee. And I don't want to take a wrong turn, but I do have some, I did another project where I followed all the rules of the Bible, and that one 
was a serious lesson in intellectual humility, trying to understand other people's point of view. So, How so? later. Well, I grew up with no religion, but I decided to dive in and try to understand religion by living it. And I would spend all this time with these people who were hardcore believers, some of them really literal. And what struck me was that the people there were not dumb at all, but they were so obsessed with making sure that they retained the sanctity of the Bible that they refused to accept science. And, um, and what I learned is you cannot argue with them on facts because they have created this universe of facts in quotes that they can back up there. So if you want to change them, if you want to fix it, how do you do that? I think you have to be humble and talk to them to get their point of view. Why do they believe this so strongly? And then you can start to address it. So one told me, well, how can you have any human dignity if you believe that humans came from slime, from ooze? And I was like, that is a great point, because I want human dignity. It, so, it's called evolution. <laughs> we got better as time went on. Well, that's it. If you that's can convince them. Yeah. Right. I mean, doesn't the Bible say we all came from dust? Well, there you go. That's a good one. If, if you can make that kind of argument, if you can tell them we can retain our dignity and have evolution, then you're going to be more likely than say, you're an idiot. Look at the evidence. Look at 99% of scientists. So if we are about out of time, I'd like to suggest that we take a moment to express our gratitude around the table. Is that too cheesy or can we do that? I'm happy to do okay. it. Okay. Okay, Who you, wants to go first? You first. Okay. okay. Yeah, first, definitely. <laughs> so my, I'm feeling very grateful to, to Jim and to Richard for inviting me to be a part of this experiment today. And to I so admire your podcast. And this, as you know, is my first time getting to guest host one. So that you would welcome me to this process is a real gift. So thank you. Okay. Well, I, I want to thank Miranda, our oh, producer. I, I was going to do that one. <laughs> I want to thank Miranda too. And I also, I want to thank Miranda, our producer, because she really does make us sound better than we otherwise would um, through her, through her editing and through all the stuff that, that goes on. For instance, when there's a, there's a rumble on the microphone and then miraculously I listen to her edit and it's like, it's gone. I don't know how she does it. The other thing I want to say thank you to, because I was at a conference uh, last week of fellow podcasters, is just being part of a podcast community. I've learned so much from, from not from my competitors, from, from people who are doing other podcasts. I want to thank my partner, Richard, whose idea this was and who dragged me into it. Um, you know, not really being that focused on podcasts at the time, I guess almost three years ago now. And, and it's been such a cool adventure to be part of this community and also to meet people like you, AJ. I mean, when I look back, I mean, you know, all these people that you mentioned, like, you know, that have come up even in this show are people that we've interviewed for our podcast, got a chance to get to know a little bit, hear their ideas, help spread those good ideas to the world. So I'm thankful for being able to be part of that. Ideas are, the, to me, the, the one of the coolest parts of life and to be talking to people with right on the cutting edge of what we should be focused on as a society to me is really exciting. So I'm not going to be too shocked if Miranda adds some cheesy music underneath this. <laughs> to really bring <laughs> us part of the show. To bring us that sense of elevation that comes with gratitude. 
And I think all of us are grateful to AJ for going on your quest and for sharing your perspectives with the world and your insights. And of course, for joining us around the table. Thank you. And I'm thankful for both of your podcasts, which I have listened to. I actually, I do listen on double speed. So listening now, it's like, what's wrong? Are they okay? Are oh my goodness. <laughs> they listen on double speed. That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Uh, I'm so impressed you could do that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love both. And the mission of both of yours uh, to bridge the divide and get people thinking clearly. AJ Jacobs, author of Thanks a Thousand, and thank you very much. That was fun. Excellent. Deb, this is the part of the show where Richard and I normally, on How Do We Fix It, do our wrap-up. After our guest has left, we kind of review their main points. Maybe and, and, we, and sometimes we argue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's heterodox. We, um, <laughs> we believe in intellectual diversity, even in our own little podcast. <laughs> I, I, I wholly endorse this strategy. So one of the questions that I was intrigued with, when you talked to AJ about parenting, what was your sense of his take? So my thinking on this is that how we teach our kids to be and to do and to live in the world is super important. And obviously, having read AJ's book, I'm convinced gratitude, gratitude is central, but it's not clear to me how do we instill that in our children. So I thought his, you know, some of his ideas of listing out the things that we're grateful for that makes sense, asking and whether it's around the table or I mentioned that bedtime, I think those are good strategies, but I'm not sure it's deep enough. It's a practice rather than a point of view. And I think it becomes deep through repetition, through practicing it every day. And through modeling it for the kids. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, setting a good example. Is that what you mean by modeling? Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) And everything that that AJ's talking about, it's, it's very, has a lot in common with the Zen idea of being present and being present with your kids, not being on your phone. You know, while you while you're together and focused on them is a wonderful way to start this. And part yeah. of part of being present there too is being able to notice the the texture and the nuance in our world and to be able to to name that for those who we're with, including for our children. Yeah, and it's not just about being grateful, I think, this book. It's about being curious. So I have a question for the two of you as journalists. So AJ is an immersive journalist and spends a lot of time walking in other shoes. And I found myself as I was reading the book, curious about the the line between perspective taking and, and learning about how others experience the world by living in their shoes, and perhaps even um, appropriating somebody else's life or livelihood. So right now, there's this big debate, you know, about cultural appropriation. And is it okay to, you know, to wear an Asian style dress to your high school prom? Or is that some kind of terrible cultural appropriation? I think the whole world is a history of of positive cultural appropriation. Hopefully it happens without exploitation. But I mean, look at American music. I'm a musician. American music without the contribution of African Americans would not be American music. If you tried to forbid that, and say that certain people can't use certain rhythms, you would cut off the growth and the, and the richness of culture. I want to answer your question a little differently, Deb. You mean you want to focus on her actual question instead of the grandiose <laughs> point that I was trying to make? <laughs> I don't want to have a, a gym-like rant. <laughs> you, your organization talks a lot about intellectual humility. And I think that some of the best journalism comes through humility. 
where you do your best as a journalist to try and tell someone else's story or represent somebody else's point of view without telling the audience what you feel and or how the audience or, or readership should think. Yeah, I think for me, that notion of humility, as soon as I realized, I certainly don't know everything about, frankly, anything. And to become curious about how somebody else sees it or how somebody else thinks about it, and to invite them to share their story through experience, to me, that's a beautiful thing. And, and to the point of appropriation of the stories in the book, I don't think it's appropriation. I, I think you're, uh, it's more like you're conveying this story to other people in a way that really honors those people. Their story wouldn't be told in that way otherwise. And I think we should, we should celebrate that. And, and that's what good writers do. I well, agree. I want to I celebrate the fact that we did this show together. And it worked. High five. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, guys. It's How Do We Fix It? And Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Deb Mashek. Thanks for listening. This is Chris Martin, the regular host of the podcast. You can learn more about AJ Jacobs at ajjacobs.com. He's also on Twitter at AJ Jacobs. You can follow Deb Mashek on Twitter at Deb Mashek HXA. Mashek is spelled M A S H E K. And you can follow How Do We Fix It, the podcast, on Twitter at How Do We Fix It. Our next episode features Tanya Reynolds, social psychologist at the Kinsey Institute for Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. She'll be talking about moral typecasting and her research showing that men are typecast as perpetrators of harm, whereas women are typecast as victims of harm. The episode after that features Craig Frisbee and Joshua Phillips. Craig is at the College of Education at the University of Missouri, and he's the co-editor of a new critical book about cultural competence and applied psychology. Josh is a communications professor at Penn State Brandywine, and he has a chapter in that edited book. He specializes in the study of homeless people and their life narratives. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org. Or you can tag me on Twitter at ChrisMartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.